The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am delighted to welcome one of my favorite guests back, Dr. Dorothy Sears. She is a professor of nutrition at Arizona State University's College of Health Solutions. She is also an adjunct professor of medicine at the University of California, San Diego, Department of Medicine. Dr. Sears received her bachelor's degree at the University of Southern California and a doctorate in molecular biology and genetics at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. She has conducted cardiometabolic disease and cancer research since 1995 and is an internationally recognized expert in these fields. Her research is currently centered around the health impact of sedentary behavior and sitting time in older adults, as well as intermittent fasting gene-gut-microbiome-environment interaction, energy balance, and diet composition. I heard Dr. Sears speak at an Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics meeting years ago when she presented on the potential for intermittent fasting to reduce breast cancer recurrence, and I wanted to have her back to do a follow-up on that research, as well as intermittent fasting in general, the harms from prolonged sitting, and how circadian rhythms play a role in diet and health. Welcome, Dr. Sears. Thank you very much. It's great to be back. Well, your research is so important, and there are so many questions and ideas floating around out there about diet and exercise and timing of all of those. And because we are well into the first quarter of the new year, I think people's resolutions to lose weight may have fallen by the wayside by now. At least that's that seems to be the typical trajectory of these things. And so I wanted to get your opinion on what you have found in your research to be the most beneficial diet speaking. And in specific, I want to focus on the research that you've done on intermittent fasting, probably starting out with a definition of intermittent fasting because there are different ways of doing it. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, right. I, th- I don't even think I make New Year's resolutions anymore. <laughs> right. I know. They're not <laughs> really recommended. February. <laughs> <laughs> right. But hopefully in the context of our conversation today, I can provide people with some really encouraging small changes that they can make in their behaviors that will, I think, they can stick to for perhaps a lifetime and perhaps enjoy the health benefit from those small changes in behaviors. So for intermittent fasting, yeah, this is a very hot topic still. It's been that way for a while. Intermittent fasting is any cessation of the intake of calories, and then water usually is not included, so any calories from food or drink. It's a voluntary abstinence from food and caloric drinks. And the amount of time that folks abstain from the consumption varies quite a bit. So some intermittent fasting regimens can be whole days, for example, taking in no calories for an entire day, and then maybe the next day eating, and then the next day, so alternating the fasting from day to day. Or there are modified regimens where folks, instead of fasting completely for the day, 
they'll take in only about 25% of their caloric needs in a day, and they'll do that two days a week, usually non-consecutive days. So one of those regimens is called the 5-2 diet. So five days you're eating whatever you want, and just two days you're eating that 25% of your needs. And then there's also my favorite, which is fasting during the nighttime. And so what that means is consuming what evidence is showing supports an earlier dinner and then abstaining from any other caloric intake until breakfast the next day. And that period of time, a sweet spot seems to be somewhere between 12 and 14 hours. Now, there's a lot of mouth model research in these fasting regimens, particularly the fasting during the nighttime. And these regimens in mice have kind of fallen on a regimen of eight hours of consuming food and 16 hours of fasting. So a lot of people like doing that 16-8 regimen, but we don't have very much evidence showing that that longer fasting period of time is any better than a 12 to 14 hour fast. Hmm. Uh, There's still a lot of research going on, and so I'm doing that, other folks are doing that, and so we should be getting some new exciting data soon. Well, what I thought was so remarkable about the data that you presented at the dietetics conference was that you studied women and they had had breast cancer. And what you found was that with a 13.5 hour fasting time, they were able to reduce the recurrence of breast cancer by 36%. And really, there wasn't any other dietary factor that seemed to rise above. So, you know, as a dietitian, we're always recommending heart-healthy diets because they also reduce the risk of cancer. And we recommend whole foods and we recommend eating more fruits and vegetables. But what you found to be the most significant indicator for protection was this fasting period. And I thought it's such an important tool that people can use that doesn't do any harm but may offer such potential good. Do you have any updated data on that research that we should know about? So we don't have any updated research for the the human cancers, although we have a couple of pilot projects underway. For example, one study being conducted in breast cancer patients with advanced metastatic disease, so folks that really need some help. And so very excited about that. We published last January 2021 a paper in the mouse model of breast cancer. So it's a postmenopausal, overweight or obese mouse who we inject tumor cells into her breast fat tissue, and then we gauge how fast do the tumor cells grow. And so we find that in the obesity state, the, the cells grow quite quickly. They grow faster than in, in a lean mouse. However, when the mouse is restricting their food intake to only eight hours and then fasting for 16 hours during their nighttime or during their sleeping time, the, the tumor growth is slowed by 50%. It's, wow. it's absolutely striking. The mice, we, you spoke a little bit about weight loss. The mice in this regimen, they lose a little bit of weight, but they are still overweight. They're still obese in the mouse category. So it seems that both metabolic, meaning blood glucose and blood insulin levels are improved as well as cancer outcomes with this very simple change to eating pattern. And the mice are still consuming quite a nasty high-fat diet, <laughs> very 
unhealthy diet, and yet they're getting this benefit from the fasting intervention wow. alone. And help me understand about the timing of the fasting, because I recall from your research that you presented years ago that it matters when we eat. And so for people who say, well, okay, I'm going to do this fasting period, but I'm going to skip breakfast and then eat later in the day, it seems to really matter that we start that fasting period earlier in the day. So maybe we're having dinner, say, at five or six. What is the cutoff, do you think, the best cutoff for ending or having that last evening meal? Yeah, that's also a really good question. So again, in our larger population analyses where we have you know hundreds or a couple thousand individuals in the study, we the sweet spot for that last meal time seems to be somewhere between 6 and 8 p.m. And not just the stopping there, but just consuming more than 30% of your calories after 6 p.m. is associated with greater cardiometabolic risk and the same types of risk factors that influence cancer risk as well. Wow. So, for example, we found that the later eating times are associated with higher waist circumference. Yep. And also with higher glucose, blood sugar, blood insulin, and what we call insulin resistance, which means the body is not responding well to insulin, and so your body needs to secrete more. And this is bad for cancer because insulin drives the growth of tumors. So you definitely don't want to be having more insulin in the circulation than we need. Right. And then for individuals who think they're going to prolong their fast by skipping breakfast. You haven't found that to be a good plan. You recommend that people eat breakfast and just maybe, should we have the biggest meal in the morning or the biggest meal at lunch, but then certainly have a smaller dinner later in the day? Mm -hmm. These are also really good questions. And really, a recommendation can be made based on the research that exists to the state, you know, whether the bigger meal should be the breakfast or the lunch. But data suggests that you definitely want to eat breakfast, skipping the later the timing is of that first eating occasion of the day is associated with poor cardiovascular health outcomes, including higher diastolic blood pressure and higher blood sugar. That's from our own work that we published in 2020 in the journal Nutrients. And so the way our bodies are designed is that we are really quite able to process calories that are we take in in the morning and midday. And throughout the day, our bodies become less and less proficient, if you will, <laughs> at processing calories and nutrients that are coming in. So we need to look and we go for the big lunch or the big breakfast. Right. It's unclear. Yeah, and so often we don't have an emphasis on timing. Even with surgical procedures, I've seen research looking at timing matters. So mm -hmm. this is all, as you mentioned earlier, good information that we can practice to just give our healthy lifestyles a kickstart. So timing matters. Have you looked at dietary composition in terms of if insulin and high blood sugar our drivers of cardiometabolic disease as well as cancer, should we err on the side of fewer carbohydrates, more protein and fat, especially in that dinner meal? Yeah, so I would like to think so. 
still, I think the evidence is out, but when in the, the study that you described in the breast cancer survivors, we had a lot of information about not just when they were eating, but what they were eating. And so I asked the graduate student who we were working with to take a look, and I said, well, does it matter if they're eating more carbs at night or not? And she could not find any evidence in that data set that there was an influence of the meal composition as far as the macronutrients. But there is a paper that was published of hospital records from Hong Kong and looking at breast cancer incidence in women. And those who ate food after 10 p.m. had increased risk of breast cancer. And then when they said, okay, well, let's look at the macronutrient composition of those foods after 10, they found that if the foods were fruits and vegetables, they did not see an increase in breast cancer for those women. So I think there's a lot of promise in not just gauging the timing, which is the easiest thing, but also thinking like, well, maybe for dinner I'm going to have a lot of vegetables, some lean protein, and something calorically, the total calorie is smaller. And, right. uh, you know, I rarely eat dessert anymore, so I often, if I'm craving something like that, I eat it with my breakfast and my coffee. Yeah. Chocolate and coffee goes really well together. <laughs> right. Well, you know, it's interesting because after I heard you speak, and we're talking years ago, I also changed my timing of ice cream consumption. I thought, I am not going to eat ice cream after dinner for dessert. It's going to have to be around lunchtime. So, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> News you can use. Dr. Sears, let me take one break because we're halfway through and just remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Dr. Dorothy Sears, professor of nutrition at Arizona State University's College of Health Solutions. And we are focused today on intermittent fasting sedentary behavior, and the timing of our meals. All right, because we're halfway through, I feel like we have to dive into the next phase of your fascinating research, which has to do with the time that we spend in sedentary behaviors. And this is part of a trial that you are still working on. It's called Rise for Health. And this is me again, especially with COVID, and so many of us really, I think we're finding more entertainment time at home. We're sitting in front of the television, maybe watching series, binge watching series. And then we've already been sedentary behind our computers. So tell me what you are studying in this Rise for Health trial. Yes. So Rise for Health is a study funded by the NIH and specifically the division called the National Institute of Aging. And so we have what's called a program project grant. This kind of a grant includes three projects. So I'm the leader of what we call a clinical laboratory project of sitting. And so we bring overweight or obese postmenopausal women into a clinical laboratory setting, and they sit in a very comfortable chair. <laughs> they are sedentary. We screen them ahead. And then we're trying to see how if we could just have the ladies stand up for brief periods of time not move around, not exercise, just stand up in a horizontal, you know, straighten up their legs, stand up a little bit. How does that improve the way their bodies are managing glucose, blood sugar from meals that they consume with us, and then also their insulin levels in response to the food? And then we also are interested in how the blood vessels in the legs are responding to those standing breaks, breaking up that sitting time. So we use an ultrasound method to look at the 
femoral artery. And in our pilot studies that we used to help get this work funded, we saw extremely promising effects and actually statistically significant improvements in the arterial function just with brief spans of 10 minutes once an hour. So it's very exciting because in a single day, these ladies come in and one day, they, over five hours of time, they span 10 minutes once an hour. That arterial function improved in that time, in that five hours of time. So if you think about spending the weekend and watching your favorite Netflix series, so let's say every episode you know, that you're watching, you stand up for 10 minutes, you can still watch it, but just stand up and give your body a break. Right. Well, I thought it was interesting in some of the research that has been looking or tracking this research to date, it's mentioned that postmenopausal women have increased risk for overweight and obesity and insulin resistance, which elevates their cardiovascular risk and, as we just talked about, also increases breast cancer risk. And also, you mentioned that adults who are 60 years and older are the largest sedentary population in the United States. So something happens, too, after menopause when our estrogen levels take a deep dive that really increases our cardiovascular risk. So this idea of simply being able to get up for just 10 minutes during maybe a time that you might be sitting behind your computer or watching television seems to make a significant difference in reducing risk. It's such a simple thing to do. Yes, it's very simple. And that's why when we thought about designing our study, how a lot of evidence that sitting is bad for cardiovascular health and cancer, and we all are doing a lot of it. So how do we solve this problem? And so we like studying postmenopausal women. (laughs) We are the largest, I'm included in the group. Uh, We are the largest growing population of older adults. And women become frail faster with time, with age than men, and they use more medical resources. So how can we help this population that has clear need? And so we thought, well, we want to study women of any age and almost any physical capability. So we were not wanting to use treadmills and weightlifting and things like that that other folks were testing. And not that those aren't effective. They are at breaking up, reducing the negative effects of sitting time. But they're not feasible for the population we're interested in. So that's where we settled on the standing. We said, well, what if you can just stand up? What if that's all it takes? And that's something that almost anyone of any age could do. Hmm. Now, in one of the studies or one of the trial legs, you had 518 women, 55 years of age and over. And were they basically averaging nine hours a day of sitting? So that was, right, so that was women that came from three studies where we actually had the data for their sitting time. And so we did not intervene on them. This was just what we call an observational study. Right. And so, yeah, so a total of 518 women. And so we had their sitting time and we knew how, not just how many hours or minutes that they accrue their sitting time per day, but also how long is their average sitting bout. And so a sitting bout is a period of time where you sit in the chair without getting up. That's a bout of sitting. Mm. <laughs> so we looked at the total sitting time, and we also looked at the sitting bout, the mean sitting bout length. And we found that the longer sitting time and the longer sitting bout for the women was associated with increased blood sugar, increased insulin, BMI was higher, waist circumference higher, and triglycerides as well. 
Wow. All of those risk factors for the two chronic diseases that plague us most in this country. I want to ask about people who, and I'm going to be in this group, people who will maybe spend an hour exercising. You know, I'll go out and ride my bike or go for a long walk, and then I'll come in and I'll think, okay, this is my work time now. I'm going to sit behind my computer. But even if you get that good chunk of physical activity or exercise during the day, it's still not okay to sit in your chair for hours on end. Correct. So you describe a lot of folks who say, okay, well, on my way to work, I'm going to stop by the gym and I'm going to ride the, run on the treadmill for half an hour and then I'm going to get back at my car, sitting, drive to work, go to my office, sit in meetings, sit at my computer, and you'd feel good about yourself because you went to the gym and you exercised. But you are absolutely right that the negative effects of sitting time persist even when individuals are involved in what we call guideline levels of physical activity. So those are the American guidelines, U.S. guidelines for physical activity, which is 150 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity. So even if you're doing that, it doesn't, the negative effects of sitting time persist. And there was a study, not an intervention, but just looking at population data from a million individuals And they estimated from that data that an individual would have to exercise two hours a day to offset the negative effects of eight hours of sitting, which is a lot every day. I mean, it's just not feasible, right? Right. Wow. So, and interestingly, there were a couple of studies looking at, okay, well, let's increase folks' involvement in physical activity and then see if that reduces their sitting time, like replace the sitting time with the physical activity. But what they found was that people did successfully increase their physical activity, but they, but in some studies, they actually sat more. <laughs> right. You know, to get home from the gym, they're like, oh, I'm going to sit down here on the couch. And right. <laughs> well, and you think I've already exercised, so I'm good to go now in front of my computer for hours on end. So I think this is really important data. And I know I do have friends who are writers, and they say they set an alarm at their computer. You know, we've got to find a way to make this happen. Because I think anybody who works behind a computer knows what it's like to get wrapped up in something. And before you know it, oh my gosh, I've been sitting here for two and a half hours. So Having some kind of alarm, I think, might be a good way or an intervention to help us remember to get up. Do you have any advice on what works for your populations that you're studying? Yeah, so we provide them with multiple tools that they can choose from. So there are wrist-worn devices that you can set to vibrate at a certain frequency. They don't necessarily know whether you're sitting or not. The uh, Apple Watch, as I understand, will alert you if you've not been moving within a certain period of time, so that can alert you. I don't like alarms ringing. It's distracting. So yeah. what I use is a sand timer. So I have a sand timer. I have one that has an hour of sand, and I have another one that's a half an hour. I prefer the half an hour one. And so then I can just look over, and if the sand is gone, I need to stand up. And luckily for me, in my office, I have an electronic standing desk, so I don't need to stop my work. I just move the desk up, and I'm standing. And I even do that in Zoom meetings. So those are some of the tools. If you, you know, a standing desk is a great tool. It doesn't have to be the whole desk. You can buy platforms that can be moved. So to move your whole computer up and your keyboard, and then you just put it back down. So there's a lot of options to discover what works for you to break up your sitting time. 
Yeah, I think this is great advice. All right, now we just have a few minutes left, and I want to make sure before I throw in any more of my own questions, I give you a chance to share with our listeners anything from your research that you want to make sure we know. Gosh, well, maybe I will say that the combination of kind of the timing of things and the prolonged sitting, I think are going to converge in a couple of ways. And it's a new areas of research that we are pursuing funding for. So, for example, we have a population study showing that women who sit more in the afternoon have worse physical functioning, which is an indication of your fitness and physical capabilities. They have worse physical functioning over time if they sit mostly in the afternoon versus the women who sit mostly in the morning. Wow. So that's interesting because then it's, okay, what's going on in the afternoon? Of course, circadian rhythms are there <laughs> undermined, right. so it makes me think of that. And then another area we're focused on, which is similar, is looking at this screen time and particularly screen time at night, and we call it discretionary screen time. So this is you're watching your Netflix, you're engaged in social media, this kind of thing. So typically this is in the evening. We know from studies of television watching that people tend to eat worse quality food when they're in front of a screen. Of course, it's nighttime, so there, there you've got calories coming in in the nighttime, which we know is not in a good alignment with our circadian rhythms. And then in addition, the screen is emitting blue light, and blue light is going to inhibit the release of melatonin, which is the circadian-regulated hormone that helps us sleep. So this discretionary screen time, oh, and then you also have the prolonged sitting. So we've got sitting, blue light, and uh, a lot of food intake in front of the screen. So we're really excited to pursue this, and we were also very inspired by our own behaviors during COVID, <laughs> of watching more television right. uh, and screens, yeah. Wow. Well, I will provide a link to your website from Arizona State University, and people can follow your research and Google your name and learn more of as your research progresses. I want to just sneak in one more question, if I might, and that has to do with the timing of exercise. And it was interesting, you said sitting in the morning was better than sitting in the afternoon, and then I'm assuming in the evening as well. I saw a research paper that said that exercise in the afternoon is much better for you if you want to control blood sugar. So that would match with what you're saying. Yeah, and it might be that in the afternoons, we have core blood glucose control. And so we know that exercise increases the uptake of blood sugar. So it may be more beneficial because of that. It's really that the glucose regulation is core in the afternoon. So why not do something that enhances the glucose clearance? But, you know, when I've talked to folks about what's the best time to exercise, <laughs> and the exercise scientists will say, whenever you can get people to do it. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Start exactly. there. And Exactly. And, you know, so I think... You know, exercise, I, I want to just make sure that people understand that I wholeheartedly support, you know, exercise and the importance of it on health. But I think it's important to also think about the sitting time because it is initially people are saying it's like uh, sitting is like smoking. Exactly. Um, the new smoking. And the analogy is a good one in the respect that you can't exercise away your cigarette smoking. Right. And for the most part, you can't exercise away your sitting time. So wow. we all need to be mindful of that. 
Good advice. Well, we've got to close, so I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Dorothy Sears, Professor of Nutrition at Arizona State University's College of Health Solutions. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Melinda. 